But many of you have uh, seen, and many of you have not, but uh, the movie that uh, I believe came out last month that is called Jesus Revolution. Jesus Revolution. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I think it's still in the theaters. I don't know about here in Lakeland, but before very long, it's going to make its way through your streaming services or whatever, and you'll be able to watch it through Prime, Netflix, or whatever it is that you have. But the movie just kind of, and this is not a, a message on a movie, but I'm using this as a kind of a springboard this morning uh, to talk about some things that I think uh, the Lord, again, has impressed in my heart. And in essence, the movie is a, uh, it's very well done, but, and it's a true factual movie. Uh, of course, there's the entertainment value and creativity in it, but it's, it's factually based on a real historical period of time, and the events that the movie uh, centers around is uh, Greg Laurie. Some of you know that name, an evangelist pastor in California, and it is kind of his story of coming to faith in Christ, but uh, around that are some events of what God used that most church historians would characterize as a genuine revival in American history. Now, if you know anything about revival, you know there's no revival, quote-unquote, that's ever been perfect or flawless, right? But it was, by any account, sociologists, whatever, it was a genuine movement that took place. Now, remember the context of what was going on in that setting, uh, that there was the, some of you were, were one of these, hippies, um, and uh, you were part of that countercultural world and movement that really kind of is the uh, product of the whole baby boomer generation of the 60s. And that movement was characterized by a lot of things that we look back now. And, and uh, the sexual revolution took off. Uh, there was drug experimentation that, that began to take place. College campuses were hotbeds of activist activity, and one of the things that was going on was as kind of a, an undercurrent that was causing a great stir here in the United States was the war in Vietnam, and it, it was growing more intense and more intense, and so, you know, today we think that we have, and, and, and it, no question is our culture is in turmoil, but we think this is just the only time in, in modern history that we as a nation have been almost torn at the seams, that we've been under a, kind of a cultural siege and upheaval. But some of you who remember were alive. I was alive, and I remember very little as a kid. But 1968, 1968, historians will, will look back and have written whole books just on 1968 alone. That they say that if the United States ever faced another civil war, 1968 provided the perfect storm of events that was happening in the United States that was tearing it apart. Let me give you just some of the examples. Uh, and again, not, this is not a history lesson, but I'm just trying to build a little context for us this morning to where we want to go. In January, at the height of the Vietnam War, pretty much most Americans were being sold on the idea that the tide was turning, that America was winning the war. But in January of 1968, 
something happened called the Tet Offensive, T-E-T. Tet is the name of the Lunar New Year in Vietnam, and that was a reference uh, to a major military assault by the North Vietnamese upon forces in South Vietnam, among the Americans uh, that were there. And what that did was this assault quickly made it visible to everybody. And, of course, it was one of the first wars that was covered and shown in your living room with Walter Cronkite. That's the way it is. Um, that was brought to you, and I started to say living color, but in my house it was still black and white. But you were seeing the realities. My brother Joe was in Vietnam in 1968. He remembers, and he was there when this happened. But what that did is it took already a, a, the turmoil of Vietnam and made it vividly clear that the United States was not turning this thing around. That this was a major, major setback. So that's going on. And already the draft, some of you remember the draft, some of you were drafted, and that is, that is happening, and there was many that were going to Canada and burning draft cards because they did not want to fight this war that seemed to be no end. And so in February of that year, 1968, the United States lost more Americans in one single week than all the previous uh, weeks pr prior to that. It was like 600 in just a week of Americans that were getting killed. And it was, it was quite common that your neighbor, your cousin, your nephew, somebody in your circles or neighborhood or somebody you went to school with, high school with, was either in Vietnam or perhaps was even killed in Vietnam. Well, that created a tremendous pressure on the President of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was in his really first full term. Remember, he was president after Kennedy was assassinated, and he was elected to a full term in 1964. So he could have ran and was expected to be the nominee in 1968 to be the Democratic nominee for his political party. But something unusual took place. It's not quite as uncommon today, but he was, going, he was being challenged by people in his own party that wanted to get out of the war, and they didn't think he was doing it fast enough, and they weren't sure what was happening. Again, some of you that remember this, you remember the craziness and the pressure that was going on. And so by the end of March, just March of that year, cataclysmic -ish change. Lyndon Maines Johnson went on national television and announced that he would not run again for the presidency of the United States. Well, the one that was the most likely to become president, or at least get the Democratic nomination, was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. But we're only in March. April, Martin Luther King went to Memphis to help and assist and draw attention to sanitation workers that were in terrible uh, conditions of working. And it was when he was standing outside waiting to go to dinner at the Lorraine Motel that an assassin at a flop house across the way uh, shot and murdered Martin Luther King. We're just in April. May, college campuses, some of the college campus uh, uh, offices and are literally being taken over by students. June, at the, towards the end of June at the Democratic National Convention, you know, the Democrats have their convention, Republicans have their convention, 
Uh, that was coming up in August. But in June, Robert F. Kennedy had just had a huge victory. He had won the California Democratic primary. Big, big, big win. And that really was going to propel him to get the nomination. And more than likely, he could have easily become the President of the United States. But as he was exiting out the back of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, he was going through a kitchen, and Sirhan Sirhan, who was a Palestinian radical, uh, reached out and shot Robert F. Kennedy to death at the end of June. We're only into the first six months of 1968, and it's hard to look back, unless you live through some of that, to see how all of these things... Imagine every month... For six months, having a 9-11 type event. Listen, the country was in absolute turmoil. Families turned against each other. Sons, dads. I mean, it was a mess. But here's what I want you to think about and look at. And here's where we want to go. It was into this chaos that God did something big. God is not intimidated by chaos. Have you figured that out? In fact, he does his best work in chaos, right? Now, I mentioned the movie, but what I want you to see in just a minute is about a four-minute clip from a documentary, not the movie. Because again, I don't want you to think that the movie is just kind of this Hollywood version of a story. And again, I'm not taking away from that. I would recommend the movie. It's good. But I want, you to, I want you to get a glimpse of the real deal, the real Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith, pastor of Calvary Chapel in Southern California. And to get a little, little taste of the real uh, setting of what God was doing there, the latter part of 67, definitely into 68. And so there's just a little clip that I'm going to show you here this morning and I want you to kind of look to the screens, and they're going to show that. Make sure you got the audio up. The beauty, the glory of the whole experience as the uh, beach is just lined with thousands of people singing the choruses and praising the Lord, then walking out into the water and the bearing of the past, and then when they realize that all of the past is gone, that it's all been buried, that God has absolutely nothing against them, the slate is clean. It's a brand new life now with Jesus. Not only that, even as the Spirit descended upon Jesus after his baptism, their hearts are open and they just receive the power of God's Spirit to live that new life that the Lord wants them to live. And it, it's indescribable. <laughs> Kim really had this burden uh, ahead of anyone else or before anyone else that I heard of. And, and Chuck opened up his heart and the rest is history. I mean, it literally changed American history. Here is a man and a woman that for 17 years, nothing has happened to them. They've had it tough. And then all of a sudden, at God's divine time, God begins to use Chuck and Kay, and it becomes a world movement. The Lord just chose for this time to pour out His Spirit upon this troubled youth. And uh, many, many thousands came to know Christ during which was called the Jesus Movement by Life Magazine, I think. 
And uh, it was true, it was, it, Jesus was moving. God was doing something special in the Jesus movement. And the Jesus movement was bigger than Calvary Chapel, obviously. But God had such a unique role for Pastor Chuck and Calvary Chapel to play in that. What Pastor Chuck did was he brought these lives that were being changed and this outpouring of God that is often called the Jesus movement. And he really connected them to church. God has used him in an unparalleled way because he's stuck to the word and he's taught the word. I sometimes think if you squeeze Chuck, the word of God would squirt out. He's a man who puts God first and he is a, a role model. If a, if a young pastor's come along, you know, who, who do you want to shape your ministry after? Shape it after Chuck Smith, you won't go wrong. One day, as I was sitting in the little church on Sunflower in Greenville, this group of hippies, or guys came in, and uh, they said, we're musicians, and the Lord has given us, we all accepted the Lord here, you know, last week, and the Lord's giving us some Christian music, and we'd like to share it here if we could. And I was a little skeptical, but I said, well, you know, can you give me a demonstration? They said, yeah. And so they went out and got their uh, guitars and all out of their van and, uh, and the, you know, the, their instruments, and they came on the bass and all, and, and they started singing uh, this song. And, and as they started singing, it was so moving, so touching. I started weeping. And so I said, it's Monday, and I said, we have a Monday night study with the kids. Can you come tonight? And they said, well, one of our lead guitarists uh, is doing weekends in jail, but he gets out at noon, and so we can probably make it. He was doing a marijuana rap on weekends. And so they came that Monday night, and it was just electrifying. Long hair, short hair some coats and ties, people finally coming around, looking past the hair, straight into the eyes, people finally coming around. It was the story of what was happening uh, during this great uh, movement among the young people. So this morning, I want to call this message a Jesus revolution, and really it's just a springboard of looking at some, just some general biblical truths talking about revival. And as I mentioned that Chuck Smith, uh, much to appreciation of Franklin Graham, he would be the last one to say, model your life after me. He was a very humble man, and uh, what I think made one of the strengths of the Calvary movement and movements that were attached to that was it wasn't attached and built around a personality. And you heard what Tim LaHaye said. Tim LaHaye's with the Lord now, and Chuck Smith is as well. Uh, and he said they built it around the Word of God. And it was something that drew, it wasn't just some movement reading stadiums and having big movements and selling a lot of tapes and books, and some of you know what tapes are, and, uh, you know, doing that whole thing. But it was grounding them and discipling them in a local church. A lot of those other guys you saw from Calvary Chapel, uh, all of them were birthed out of that local church and went on to become pastors and teach the Bible and do things likewise. You know, as I was thinking about it and looking, and maybe you're like this too, and you see the band up there with the hair and the beard, you're like, 
What's so radical about that? I mean, that looks like some folks in our church now. I mean, what's the big... That doesn't look too bad. But if many of you will go back and remember, that was extreme. That was extreme. Um, today, I thought, who would be the hippies? They'd be the tattooed LGBTQ, RSPV, whatever. And I'm, not, I'm just saying, it would be the people that the moment they come into a setting, we immediately find ourselves bristling because they're so physically, their mindset, their culture, their hair, everything is just such a... But you know what? God doesn't see that, does He? See, man looks upon the outward appearance, doesn't he? But God looks upon the heart. And something we drove home in our study of Genesis so far uh, is that we are all image bearers of God. See, God sees the tattoo. You've seen some of these people that have the most horrid manipulation of their bodies and all those things. But you know what? God doesn't. He's not bothered by that because he sees he sees who he made them. And just like Peter, when he's called him a rock and he was anything but a rock, Jesus always sees the future potential of what he can do in a person's life. Now, here's the thing. I want those eyes. See, God gave, if you know the, the story, and a little bit there, and of course the movie draws it out. Chuck Smith was praying for God to move, praying for God to do something. Well, be careful what you pray for, right? Because sometimes how God chooses to move isn't the way that you expect. And sometimes the biggest change that has to take place is the change on us. Is are we going to be ready to receive what God has? So this morning we want to look and talk about revival a little bit. And uh, as I said, you can go, whether you're studying any revivals, first awakening, great, first great awakening, second great awakening in America, anything you will always find uh, flaws. But you know what? That's because why? God works through people who are flawed, right? So, of course, you're going to expect issues and problems. But what is revival? What is revival? Maybe you were raised in a setting, and if you were asked that question, you'd say, oh, yeah, I know what revival is. That's that thing we do in the spring and the fall. The deacons go out to the shed, pull the sign out, repaint over last year's date, and revival October 2 through... That's, and we bring in some guy from across the state, and he's going to preach every night, and, we, and the pastor will guilt you into coming every night, you know, for... What? No, 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 no. That's not... But sometimes we we're raised in that sense. Revival is an event. Sometimes revival is what we program and what we do. I like uh, sometimes getting definitions from different people, and uh, these are in your uh, listener's guide, these particular quotes. Um, they won't be on the screen, but Richard Owen Roberts, who, uh, before I came, uh, came uh, to this church. He's with the Lord now, but author and, uh, and a student uh, on biblical revival says, Revival is an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit producing Extraordinary results. Another quote in your in your uh, listeners' guide is from Martin Lloyd Jones, pastor at uh, from uh, England, who passed away in 1980. 
But uh, he said this, and I think this is an this is a excellent uh, definition as well. We can define revival as a period of unusual blessing and activity in the life of the Christian church. Revival means awakening, stimulating the life, bringing it to surface again. A revival is a miracle. It is the hand of the Lord, and it is mighty. It can only be explained as the direct action and intervention of God. Some of you know the name Vance Havner, old country preacher, but he was, had a doctorate. Uh, oftentimes you can find him still recordings on Moody Radio, but I love what he said. Revival is a church falling in love with Jesus all over again. But my favorite of favorites, my wife always said that. She said, every movie, every other movie is your favorite movie. I always say, oh, this is my favorite. Well, this is my next favorite quote from Leonard Ravenhill, another student of, of revival and uh, written a lot about revival. I love this. He said, revival, this is not in your outline. Revival is when God gets so sick and tired of being misrepresented that he shows up himself. I like that. Revival, someone else said, is nothing more than having our experience catch up with our theology. The Bible does talk about, and there are recorded events of what we would call revivals. The Bible doesn't necessarily use that word. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in Psalm 85, verse 6, I believe it is just one of many that gives the heart and sentiment of the psalmist and others. But uh, the psalmist writes, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again? Great spiritual revivals in the Old Testament. I mean, uh, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Asa, Hezekiah. What about Jonah, city of Nineveh? I mean, there are many. And, of course, the New Testament in, in uh, Acts, the city, city of uh, Ephesus. I mean, there's multitude of examples one of the things, again, of people who study revivals in history, one of the things that among the many characteristics they note is that, and this kind of goes back to where I started about 1968 and trying to give the context and the setting for what became known as the Jesus Movement, is that revivals occur in times of moral darkness. Revivals are often birthed in times of moral darkness. Each revival is characterized, a true biblical revival is a return to the Word of God, a return to exalting and worship of God, many, many characteristics. But one of the things that also is a characteristic of revival, especially in Israel in the Old Testament, is a time of national prosperity. I'm not talking about everybody got a Cadillac and free stuff. I'm not talking about that kind of prosperity, but I think it's the principle that is laid out in Proverbs 29.2 that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Guess what? You want to see real political change happen in America? Pray for a revival. Because when a person, heart, their heart is transformed and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, guess what? They're, they should. It should be the true fruit. But guess what? If they're, a, if they're a, whatever it is in their profession, guess what? Now they're under a new master. They're under the new lordship of Christ. And all of a sudden now they're going to begin to listen and follow 
the, the lordship of Jesus Christ and what they do. Now, in many cases, if they're a politician, that won't last because that's hard to do, right? It's hard to be a Christian. It's always been hard to be a Christian, but even more so. But there are still courageous people. But my point is, is that the effect of revival upon a nation is easily documented. Look in your, uh, your handout again. There, I have a, a little longer quote from Frank Damasio. And his book uh, on revival, I've pulled several things from it to give credit where uh, credit is due to smarter people than me. But he says this, something I, I, I had and I wanted to include in there. And again, it's on the front page, the first part of your listener's guide. He said, revival always exposes what is weak and intensifies faulty foundations that are already present. Whether it is in the extreme actions of people or in the extreme reactions of leaders, revival causes us to rethink the way we do things or to position ourselves either for or against the changes that revival invariably brings. Revival is never easy. It brings change, and some of that change can be messy. That is because the moving of the Holy Spirit is always through imperfect channels of people. Imperfect channels of people. Revival. You know, again, our culture today is overdue for a significant move of God. Now, when you read the Bible, there, are is, there is parallel events that are happening. You know, God can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? You do see a culture that the Bible says that in the latter days will grow, grow worse and worse. But at the same time, God is about gathering a harvest of people for the kingdom of God. And so even though there is the kingdom of darkness, the church, the kingdom of God rather, is in the kingdom of light under the banner of Jesus Christ, is always doing and should always be doing its Father's business. It isn't, it, listen, whatever the culture is going to do, whatever Washington is going to do, whatever's, whoever's going to be elected or whatever, if you're anchoring your hope on the next election, my friend, I don't care who it is, you're going to be disappointed. The change that must take place in our nation and in every other nation can only be changed if God, in His mercy, moves among His church. He's not going to move among the Unitarians. He's not going to move among the Mormons. He's not going to move among the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's not going to move among whatever group you want to put in. Who has the, the ear to hear what the Spirit is saying? What did Jesus do in Revelation 2-3? through 3? He was walking and He was speaking and giving words to who? The churches. The seven churches in Revelation. And every time it says, may you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I want to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I want to have an ear to hear what God is saying to His church today. And so, yes, we have massive cultural moral upheaval. Things, I mean... <laughs> Your parents and grandparents would never, ever in a million years think that we are talking about drag queen children 
book reading in the public library. That would never enter their minds. But listen, as a church, we've got to own up to what we've contributed to the mess in our culture and our society. I get sick of hearing another quote-unquote, which is an oxymoron, celebrity pastor. There is no such thing as a celebrity pastor, okay? He might be a legend in his own mind, but that's about it, all right? But, but, but if I hear another one who has dragged his quote-unquote little fiefdom down the, the drain... And driving around and flying Lear jets and spinning ridiculous... I mean, listen. Do you not think the church... Look at me. Do you not think the church has contributed? We've gone from a church of respect to a church of suspect. And that's the way they view the church. And you know what? In, many, in most cases, deservedly so. We can no longer take advantage of the cultural capital of morality in America. The sand has shifted, the ground has shifted, and it did many, many years ago while we were sleeping as a church. But the Bible uses, while the Bible doesn't specifically use the word revival, of course in the psalm we just read it spoke of revive, but the Bible uses the metaphor of visitation, of coming down. Now, some people get all hyper uh, when, you, when they hear those things, and it certainly is not in any way taking away from the fact that God's presence, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is omnipresent. He's, he is everywhere at once. We are not in any way saying He is not here. Even sometimes we pray, Lord, be with us. That's kind of a dumb prayer. Of course He's with you. But we say it, don't we? Lord, be with so-and-so as they travel. Oh, okay, I'll be with them. I wasn't going to be with them, but since you asked, I'll be with them. But we say things like that, don't we? And they're just words to convey something that is, that is maybe uh, difficult for us to... But So the Bible talks about a visitation of God coming down. And there's a few just among many different examples, and many maybe better than this. And, and these are in your uh, Psalm 80, 14... Uh, the psalmist says, return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, uh, talking individually and corporately as a vine. Visit, a time of visitation. It's an expectation of God to make His presence known among His people. The Psalm 106, verse 4, remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have towards your people. O visit me with your salvation. Revive me, visit me, Peter 1 Peter 2.12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Remember Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and said, oh, if you'd only known your day of visitation. You get the idea, you get the picture. It's not in any way saying that we compartmentalize God. It's just, it's language that we are invoking the presence of God to be among us in a very real and unusual way. But you know, there are some attitudes that can affect and hinder 
uh, revival, not just in the church, but in our own life. And let me just show you some attitudes. One is pessimism. Well, nothing good is ever going to happen. You know, there's just always kind of this negative, defeated mentality. And so pessimism. Some of you are just pessimistic by nature. But the hope of believing that God can do something unusual. We don't just have to look at 1968 or look back to the first great awakening. And we just kind of have a history lesson of nostalgia. Oh, I wish I was back then. Oh, I wish I could do what was going on back then. We're not, we're not talking about nostalgia. We're saying that God is, God is always moving progressively. God laid foundations in His building. And just because the kingdom of darkness seems to be thriving, that in no way deters the advancement of God's kingdom agenda. What about cynicism? Something I probably won't be able to share today, but I had a, a friend who visited the revival at Asbury University in Kentucky and uh, sent me a copy of an email where he was just there in the past weeks. And we're talking about people standing in line for over a mile to get into a church service. And one of the things that encouraged me is some of the things that he said uh, was that it's not, it's, it's not around any personality. In fact, they refused to let Fox News and Tucker Carlson go in there and do a story because they said, this is not what this is about. And they have, unlike some other things under the banner of revival, they have sought to protect, if you can say it that way, its purity and essence. But, you know, the, the cynic would say, oh, all those students up at college, they're just trying to get out of spring exams. Stand in line under having a big chapel service that goes on for hours. They just, don't want to, they just don't want to have those spring exams. You know, cynicism. What about this? I don't even know if it's a word. Pharisaicalism. You know what pharisaicalism? It's, it's theological arrogance. That unless every T is crossed, every I is dotted, there's an attitude and it's a spirit of superiority massed under kind of this theological precision that can be a real poison to the Spirit of God. Listen, to my knowledge, and I'm sure there's some examples you'll, you'll send me an email about, but I, I, I think there's very, I'll give one or two because I can't, nothing's coming to my mind, but Jesus really didn't correct the Pharisees on the letter of the law, it was in their application and how they misused it in applying truth. You with me? What about prejudice? Prejudice. Not just racial prejudice, but I'm thinking about God. Oh, God can't do anything with that group. They're not even Calvinists. How could that happen? You realize Asbury is historically a Methodist denomination? I've actually heard people say, well, look at, look at where they're at. I'm like, you, you are, I won't say it, because I'll have to edit it out. But that just, what about nostalgia? That's, you know, oh, the, it's never good enough. Oh, if you could just been back in Calvary Chapel, 1968. And then just plain indifference. Just don't care. All those things can hinder not just a church body, but they will hinder you from receiving and moving. And of course, people 
say, well, you know, is revival, is it a work of God or is it something we, we do? Well, it truly is a work of God. It's a miracle of God. But I think this is where we, we, get, we have to keep in balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I'll give you an example of a seed. If I had a seed for, some, for an apple tree, well, I do not have the power to make what's in that seed grow. I don't have the power to, to, to do that. That's something that a creator God has miraculously designed. But you know what I can do for that seed? I can make sure I provide it a healthy soil and environment where that seed that is going to grow and spring and break forth by a sovereign miracle of God, that because the soil and the nutrients and the watering, I can ensure that the environment enables that seed to be everything that it was designed to be. Do you see what I'm, where I'm going with that? You see, as a church, we don't, we don't force God's hand on anything. But we can create an environment. We can make sure the soil of my heart is fertile for the growth of God's Word and His seed in my life to be all that God had created me and saved me to be. You with me? And one scripture, I always see this balance in tandem is Philippians 2, 12-13. Philippians 2. But now, much more in my absence... Work out, not work for, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, all right? That's our responsibility. Work out. Apply the gospel to your life. Don't just lay in bed and take a gospel pill and you're going to wake up sanctified the next day and you're not going to be angry and cranky and late to work. You're just going to be perfect because you, you just kind of let God, let go and let God. No, 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 no. You work out. You apply truth. But then he says in the same breath, Ignore, ignore verse numbers. That's done later. It's the same thought. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So I think we need to make sure we have a balanced theology. I want you to look at these seven things that happen in revival, and I'm going to go quickly. That's the reason I just wrote them all out. And those last five things, I'm going to do that next week because I don't want to... I'm just, that was originally my message was those five points and then I got a little carried away. But I'm actually going to pick that up next week. So if you're OCD like me, you just can't live with those blank spaces. You're, going to have to, you're just going to have to live with it for a whole week, okay? And we'll pick it up next week, all right? I know, you're like, I gots to know. I gots to know what they are. Well, come back next week. Isaiah 64 is a great chapter, and it's a chapter. Uh, of course, Isaiah was a prophet. I believe Isaiah was a prophet under four, maybe five different kings uh, of Judah, of southern Israel. Really, I'll just say Israel. And uh, they kind of had an up and down spiritual spirituality. Some, some of those kings were good, some of them were bad. But the spiritual condition of the nation was moving further and further away from God. Oh, they had all the trappings. They had all the symbols, they had all the structure, but there was, it was like uh, they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power of God. They were no longer trusting in God that the things of God became, became kind, of a, uh, kind of a, what do I want to say, kind of like God in my back pocket, and they began to take things for granted and assume that because 
We are the covenant people of God. We are the people of Abraham. Nothing ever can happen against us. God's not going to judge us. We are the seed of Abraham. Well, Isaiah says, wrong, wrong. But Isaiah in 64 and uh, 63 and 64 in this area, you see, and again in other places where he is again uh, uh, coming before the Lord and crying before the Lord for God to visit them, to, to move in a, we would call it revival. Look at Isaiah 64, 1, and I have it in two different translations, the New King James. And this is how verse 1 begins. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down. Oh my goodness, that Isaiah, he's got to get his theology in order here. He's asking God to come down. Doesn't he know the doctrine of omnipresent God? He's always, no, he's saying that you would come down. God, we need you to visit us. We need your presence that the mountains might shake at your presence. Notice how the New Living Translation, same verse Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. I like that. That you would burst from the heavens and come down. So the invoking of God to visit for God. And so here are seven things that happen in revival. And to give credit where credit is due, uh, I got these from, uh, and just kind of, I call it, preachers say when you get a good outline from somebody, you baptize it. That means you, that's, you don't plagiarize, you baptize it. That way you make it your own. But, uh, so, uh, so, but credit where Frank Damasio in his book, Revival, and I thought this was worth sharing, and I'm just going to run through these quickly for time's sake. And these are seven things from Isaiah 64, the first few verses that happen in Revival. They're already written out for you. Number one is God dissolves immovable difficulties. Verse three, the mountains shook at your presence. Mountains are oftentimes pictures of difficulties. Remember what Jesus said? If you say to this mountain, be thou removed. Look, mountains are those obstacles. God, when he comes into our lives, he comes into our church, he comes into our our community, those things that seem to be obstacles that are humanly impossible for us to overturn, God's presence can do it in a moment. Sign two is God removes, and when revival happens, God removes dead areas in our lives. He says, as fire burns brushwood. He's speaking of removing the dead areas in our spiritual lives. Pruning season, all the dry brushwood is piled up and what? Burned. It's done away with. It's worthless. Dead limbs are removed from the uh, when revival happens in our lives, worthless dead limbs uh, are removed from our lives and devoured by the fire of God. Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. Fire is one of those, those metaphors or pictures of the work of the Spirit, just like water uh, and fire. He is a consuming fire. When God comes, comes down, all that is evil, all that opposes the progress of truth within us and around us is consumed. Notice three, sign three. Revival, God restores our zeal. Also in verse two, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. This speaks of God moving us from lukewarmness to a spiritual hotness. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking of Revelation chapter 3 at the church at Laodicea. You remember what 
the Holy Spirit, Jesus said to that church, Revelation 3, verse 14, and to the angel of the church of the Laodicean, write, these things say the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That's just Jesus. Verse 15, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. We could say, you make me sick. And because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Sign four, when God brings revival, God brings victory. Verse two, your name, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. You see, only God can turn the tide of opposition that we are surrounded with, where we just feel like the, dog, the rats are winning the rat race. Do you ever feel that way? When God comes down, there's victory even over our worst enemies. And I say enemies not in a personal sentence. We don't war against flesh and blood, do we? But against principalities and powers, spiritual forces, the enemies of God. I love a scripture, in, uh, and I love the way the New Living Translation writes it. And uh, it, it kind of fits a little bit here. Or I'm going to make it fit. How about that? Uh, and it's in 2 Timothy 3, 8 and 9. And Paul is referring to these two individuals by the name of Janus and Jambres. You can go back in Exodus 7. And they opposed Moses. But listen to how he writes, encouraging Timothy to stand for truth. He says, verse 8 in the New Living Translation, These teachers oppose the truth. Teachers Timothy, Pastor Tim, is dealing with. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses. In other words, there's a long history of people that are going to oppose the truth. He says, they have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. But they won't, I love verse 9, but they won't get away with this for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are. Listen, someday, someday, there will be a day in which every knee will bow. Not necessarily, it's better to do it, you know, the old preacher said, it's better to do it today and bow the knee to Jesus as Savior than to bow someday when it's too late to bow the knee to Jesus as your judge. There's coming a day in which all that is done to oppose the work of God will be revealed. The Romans 1 says, and they became fools. Number five, uh, sign number five when revival happens is that vision is enlarged. Verse 2 again says, as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, here it is, that the nations may tremble at your presence. That nations, that the presence of God, when God moves, that nations tremble. Listen, we got, we're trembling of what Iran is two weeks away from producing a nuclear bomb. That's what the news says. I believe they already got it. All right, that's just my opinion. Uh, Russia, China, a, a new 
axis of evil, as Mr. Bush would call this, these type of things. I mean, no, the Bible says that nations are going to tremble at the very move and presence of God. And so it's not only a reminder of God's sovereign control over the events of the nations, but I think there's also another application regarding revival is that God enlarges our vision, not just of His sovereignty, but also that God enlarges our vision for us to see that He is a God of the nations. We need a revival of this gospel that we have been given, that Paul says, like Timothy, is a trust that is not for us just to hoard to ourselves, but is to be proclaimed. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the what? The nations. The nations. And don't miss this covenantal connection here that nations is part of that original covenantal promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 26, 4 when he said, and I will make your, Abraham's descendants, multiply as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, that's Christ ultimately in the gospel, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. How are the nations going to tremble? They're going to tremble at the glory of the Lord, and God has ordained the means of the gospel as it is proclaimed. The sixth sign is the impossible becomes reality. Isaiah 64 verse 3, For when you did awesome things that we did not expect. Aren't you glad God is not always... And that's sometimes that's what religion will do to you, right? Because God always and always has to work in this kind of way, at always this way at this time. As we just saw and as we talked about in the beginning, God turned that on its, on its head by what He did with the revival that started in 1968 of the Jesus movement. He worked in an unpredictable way. You see, some of you grew up in churches. When you came in, you had a detailed order of the worship service that right after the offering is a time of spontaneity. Is that wrong? not wrong. That floats your boat, fine. We've got an order here. We're not going to look so pious. Guess what? The worship team, everybody knows what's going on. They didn't like that super spiritual. Listen, and some of you will appreciate this, chaos is not a gift of the Spirit. But my point is, is that if we always are locked in, that God always has to do it in this way at this time with this person or that person, Guess what? Sometimes he just will blow those doors open just to remind you who's running the show. Right? And number seven, God moves on behalf of the one, the one who waits. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you, Isaiah the prophet says. Look at this. Who acts for the one who waits for him. You know, now Isaiah is saying that because everything was a mess where he was. He was worn down preaching the truth. And he's saying, I will wait. 
Like Habakkuk in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1 of Habakkuk, I will stand on my watch and wait for the word of the Lord. We don't like waiting, do we? We don't like waiting. Where was, I mean, you know, some of us get, you know, if, if we go up to the line and say, oh, oh sorry, uh, the coffee's not ready, it'll be, you know, be ready in five minutes, we're like, oh, I can't wait five minutes. You know, or I got to put a new roll of tape in the machine or whatever. You know, we just, our, you know, we just get antsy. Some of you, not me. So many times the Lord just says, where do you got to be? You're with me, standing here in Wawa, waiting for them to get their act together. Just, in, just enjoy the moment. And you know what? It's all good. It's all good. It's all, we don't like waiting, do we? But Isaiah says, look at this, don't miss this. The God who acts for the one who waits for him. I want to show you just one last, and we're going to close after this. I want to show you just one last clip from Greg Laurie, who, if you saw the movie, it's kind of, he's kind of the, it's his story and experience. And this was an interview, and this is just a little clip from a much longer interview, but I thought what he said there towards the end was really a good way to kind of round things out, is uh, that when he had written the book called Jesus Revolution, that came out about three or four years ago, that was the basis for the movie later. So this is an interview when the book came out, and this is just a little clip towards the end of some things that he says that I think will be a good way to kind of bookend our, uh, our message today. Go ahead and show that. It is, I wrote it to a young person. I didn't write it to someone my age, though many my age will read it, and older even. But I wrote it as though I were sitting across a cup of coffee at a table with a millennial, saying to them, look, this happened to my generation. I pray it happens for you as well. Here's what took place. And because I think there are takeaway truths from then and now. I'm, I'm sorry, you asked a question, similarities. It was the country coming apart at the seams, yes. but I feel like this generation, uh, the millennials, they're looking for authenticity. They're looking for community. They're not attracted to slick production. They're not attracted to the mega church model. They want something that's real. And I think we have what they're looking for in a relationship with Christ. Is the church ready for a movement like that? Some are, and some maybe are not. You know, I think it depends, you know, for the churches that opened the doors to the Jesus movement, they experienced it, but some churches did not open their doors. They said no to those kids. So I think we have to be asking ourselves the question first, am I ready for revival? Yes. You know, I once asked Pastor Chuck Smith uh, if he thought we would ever see another Jesus revolution movement. And he said, I don't know if we're desperate enough. I think if God's people get desperate enough to pray and follow the template of 2 Chronicles 7:14, which says, God speaking, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Are we desperate enough to pray? Maybe another way to ask it is, do I want revival in my own life? Revival is just returning to original condition, a close relationship with Christ. Let's stand to our feet, and I think he's spot on there. And, and I know 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a promise to Israel, but let me tell you something. Is that promise 
not true. I don't care if you're in Zambia, Chad, Bulgaria, that if you're God's people, wherever you are geographically, that you will pray and call on His name, that He won't move. Hello? I, I just heard people dismiss, say, oh, well, that's Israel. You guys are all doctrinally wrong to even use that verse. I just, just slap you. Lay hands on them, right? No, 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 we don't do that. But, but that's a truth, that's a principle, that's a principle of Scripture that is applicable, that if you're God's people, you call on His name, and you believe God for great things. Here's a, here's a song, an old vineyard song, Refiner's Fire, and I thought it would be appropriate for us to sing that as we close this morning. Pure. 